It's got the feeling of a crazy week coming up in Major League and Minor League Baseball. Welcome into the show, everybody. It is Minor League Baseball's The Show Before the Show podcast. We've a we got a packed booth today. That's a lie. We're not all in the same booth. But uh, Jake Siner and Sam Dykstra both joining me for episode number 18 of the show. My name is Tyler Mon. Hi, fellas. Hey. Hey, how's it going? It's uh, This has already been like an insane couple of days. We've got uh, trades already, one that just broke about not even an hour ago. I don't think that we're going to talk about it here momentarily. Last night, a big trade, obviously, involving the Colorado Rockies and the Toronto Blue Jays, and it has the feel of like one of those years, you know? Like, am I alone in that? No, I, I remember last year, um, you know, we all those trades came down to the wire, and it feels like um, that's – what it's coming to now is that we're just going to have Friday's going to come the 31st and it's just going to all happen at the same time. And even the things that already have happened, it's going to continue to pour on because we have so much time left. And that's the crazy thing is that it's all started so early on in the week. Like if you one think if we were doing this on Thursday and you, you all might be listening to it on Thursday, but we're going to kind of preview the deadline for you, but we're doing this on Tuesday and there's already, it's just like everything is breaking loose already. And let's dive right into it. Three strikes. We're going to start things off with the latest move that we have heard of uh, as of just about an hour or so ago. Uh, the Oakland athletics have traded Ben Zobras to the Kansas city Royals in exchange for left-handed minor league pitcher, Sean Manaya and right-handed pitcher, Aaron Brown. Brooks, uh, Sean Manaya, very high ceiling, a guy who has kind of fallen, I think, a little bit in prospect circles this year just because of some of the injury issues. Uh, before the season started this year, he had abdominal and groin strains, but he's been back. He's been good. Uh, he's already made six appearances at advanced levels. He made one in the Arizona League when he got started, then four starts for Class A Advanced Wilmington. 1-0 record of 3.66 ERA there. He's since been promoted to the AA Northwest Arkansas Naturals and own one record of 5.14 ERA. He is definitely the centerpiece of this deal. And beyond that, the Royals are going for it, man, because this is not – I mean, the, the Royals making the Johnny Cueto move. They they get rid of John Lamb in that trade, obviously. Um, and the, the deals that they are making are byproducts of having a loaded minor league system. But when you see these names start to head out – it's this is going to be an interesting uh, few days, it seems like, for the Royals, but an interesting few months. And then going beyond this, the next few seasons to see where all these pieces land and how those guys climb versus what the Royals got in return. Yeah. And so I did want to talk about this from the A's perspective, just because they're the ones getting the minor leaguers. And that's kind of what we focus on. And I got to kind of uh, applaud Billy Bean for being able to pull a guy uh, like Sean Manaya for. Uh, half season of, season of a rental. Ben Zobris, obviously an, an excellent ball player and one of the more underrated ones probably over the last decade. But Vinaya is has uh, some of the highest upside of anybody pitching in the minors, and he has uh, an injury history, but it's a weird injury history, and it's one of those that's kind of hard to gauge how much uh, does that predict that he's going to have more injuries in the future or something. He actually um, was considered one of the top uh, prospects in the 2013 draft, and he fell in that draft because he had a hip injury, and he ended up having to have surgery uh, shortly after the draft for the hip uh, injury, and they kept him out for 2013, um, but not something that seems to have bothered him. He came back and pitched healthy in all 2014, and Tyler, as you mentioned, is having the, the groin and the abdominal stuff early this year, um, but has been really fantastic. Uh, this year he's been up to 97 miles per hour. I've seen people written, um, has a... a close to 11 strikeouts per, per nine innings through his career, um, has at times shown some some really, really good command. I think that tends to come and go a little bit, but it's it's in there for him to end up having plus command or um, a guy who can really locate within the zone really well with, with all of his stuff. Um, hasn't done that on a, on a consistent basis necessarily, but the control, I think you can at least say, is, is there to something approaching an average level. 
Um, really a big upside arm, and, and Aaron Brooks is a guy who doesn't really rank among the, the Royals' top 30 prospects, but is a guy who fits, I think, the uh, the modern Billy Bean model of finding these guys who are, you know, if you're high on them, you think maybe they're a number five starter or a number four starter, probably they're more bullpen swing guy, but he seems to love grabbing those guys and having that depth and has, has turned quite a few of those guys into usable pieces that, that fit in somewhere or another with his system. Um, but really a nice return, I think, for Oakland, considering they gave up Daniel Robertson, who Robertson rakes, uh, rakes 93rd on the MLB.com, just re-ranked their prospects. Manaya they have unranked, but honestly, I probably have Manaya ranked as a higher prospect than Robertson at this point, and they had to give up Boo Powell on that deal and also got back, you know, Escobar, so it's not quite one-to-one comparing Manaya to Robertson, but I don't think Oakland's system took too much of a hit um, just for that the seven months they rented Zobris, essentially, and they're, they're giving him up, and um, given away at this point, but I think a, a nice return there for Billy Bean. The crazy thing is, and I mentioned John Lamb, but Brandon Finnegan's in that deal as well. And we saw the way he rocketed to the major leagues uh, as a member of that team that went to the World Series last year. But the Royals now, this system has been so loaded for so long, and it looks pretty drastically different now. And not a lot of teams have that luxury. And obviously, Jake, like you said, I mean, we're kind of more interested in what it means for the team acquiring these prospects. But the Royals system, I mean, re-ranking the prospects on MLB.com, right now Sean Manaya is still slotted in there as their fourth best prospect. But this is a very different minor league system now than it was a week, two weeks ago for Kansas City. Yeah, just to kind of chime in on that, just I think the beginning of the season, um, a lot of different outlets, not just MLB, but had their top three guys as Mondesi, Manaya, and Finnegan, and now two of those guys are gone, and it's you know it's a little bit of a culture change for the Royals. You know, you you go to a World Series, you get a taste of that, and you want you want more of it, and now you know they have the best record in the AL. They are buyers and. Why not dip into that and see how long you can sustain it? And um, it, you know that uh, when you have a chance to sell, you know, and you have the pieces, do it. Go and get those pieces and try to get something out of this. You don't know when the next World Series title run can come. So if you can get a Zobris, you know, then that's you, you have to go after it and try for it. Yeah, I'd have to say I think the uh, the return for Cueto might have actually been a little stronger than the return for Zobris, which was kind of surprising to me, especially Cody Reed, who was. Um, a double-A left-handed pitcher that went to the, the Reds in that Cueto deal. He's guy has had a, a really strong year and really come on strong on some of the scouting reports. Um, so I, I think Finnegan and Manaya maybe you rate in the, sort of the same echelon of prospects, uh, maybe Finnegan a little bit ahead, um, but definitely Reed makes that a stronger package, which surprised me a little bit just because I think Zobrist and, and Cueto are maybe of, of equal value with Zobrist being a little safer, just not being a pitcher. The Oakland Athletics... Uh obviously you would assume are not done. I mean, this is such a different approach than what we saw last year from the A's when they really focused on the the major league roster. Now it looks like they're giving a lot of focus to the minor league side because last week, catcher Jacob Nottingham, one of two players along with uh, his minor league teammate Daniel Mengden, who was traded from the Houston Astros, Lancaster Jetox affiliate to the Oakland Athletics as part of a deal that brought Scott Casimir to Houston. The Astros obviously feeling like they can contend in that division this year as they have all season trying to make that push for the playoffs, which the Astros rebuild, and the fact that it's July, late July of 2015, and that team has a very realistic shot at winning the American League West is an entire podcast on its own but Nottingham Jake you and I talked a lot about Nottingham and the way that he's really upped his status this year but for those two guys kind of a different road because now you go to an organization that is somewhat in transition I think because of what we saw from the A's last year and now their seeming desire to go back to the money ball ways and go back to building themselves up from within rather than going out last year as they didn't make a lot of moves at the major league level but Nottingham and Mengden two guys who are very talented going to Oakland as well. 
Yeah, and, and, and kind of looking at those guys, the way I saw it was the Astros are kind of selling high on some low-level guys there. I mean, certainly with Nottingham, um, he's become more of a prospect this year. You know, just the, the numbers he's putting up and the, the way he's produced over what he did last year at rookie level Green, Greenville when he was, you know, hitting 230. Now, you know, between three different teams, he's hitting 320, has a 916 OPS. So if you can, you know, you it's one year difference. So, you know, they are kind of selling high. And when maybe some things have changed, but maybe, you know, maybe he's closer to a high 200s hitter than this 320 hitter he's shown on us this year. Same thing kind of with Magnin. Um, the numbers he put up at Quad Cities were, you know, really pretty strong. Um, you know, 1.16 ERA and 36 strikeouts, 38 two-thirds innings. But then he went to Lancaster and, you know, numbers changed a little bit as as they do when they go to California League. You know, it was a 5.26 ERA, strikeouts still there, 48 and 49 two-thirds innings. But, you know, when, you, um, when you're the Astros and you can – send two of these guys that may not have been, you know, high up in their system, not high up in their rankings, and get a guy like Scott Casimir, bring him home for that kind of cool story for a half year, really add to that playoff push for them. Um, that was a good opportunity for the Astros, certainly. The Houston Astros, this time last year, I don't think we would have figured we were having this conversation about them. This time last year, I don't think we would have figured we were having this conversation about the A's either. And that's what's so fun about this era of baseball now is it's it's not exactly the NFL where a team goes from worst to first every year, but there are teams who you don't necessarily expect to be in it who can be in it and vice versa now. And that's made it really, really fun over this prospect-laden era that we live in now, I think. Well, there was that story this week, too, just to kind of, go on that subject where, where um, you know, last year they booked a uh, Taylor Swift concert for the playoffs. Right, right. Houston. And they said, this is subject to change if the playoffs come. And everybody laughed because the idea of the Astros even being in contention. And then this week they had to announce that the, the concert has indeed changed because they are planning to have home playoff games in Houston. I mean, that's, it's, and, that's the well, thing. And, and one other thing to, to talk about here with, with the athletics and Billy Bean too, is something that's been revealed is I think people were questioning uh, how aggressively Oakland went after a lot of veterans giving up prospects and pieces when they went after Jeff yeah. Joe when they went after Ben Zobris. Um, we're kind of seeing the master plan here for, for being in the athletics might have been knowing that at some point those guys would have value to sell off. I think probably the hope was, was that they wouldn't be in that kind of position, but a really uh, good job by the A's of being versatile and, and quick on their feet enough where, um, you know, in the last year they've essentially turned Addison Russell and Billy McKinney and, um, you know, Boog Powell and Danny Robertson into uh, a different batch of prospects and one that maybe isn't quite as heralded, but they also got, you know, months of service out of Samarja and months out of Zobris and gave their team at least a chance to compete in the meantime. But the long-term future of the A's is not so different than, than it was before they started swinging these deals. I think obviously you miss Russell a little bit and miss McKinney. I'm not sure any of the players they have now are quite to that level, but it's not as though the, the system is barren, even though they have made their swing for the fences they at least managed to cut themselves off and and make these moves time them well enough where where the system the the cupboard never went bare and they never had to just let a guy walk and and not get a comp pick or something in return all right guys gonna wrap up three strikes this week with uh some climbing members of the new york mets organization and some breaking news as of again just the last couple of hours uh michael conforto obviously promoted made his major league debut first three games have been outstanding for him uh so far with a very hot start a 444 average and a 1250 ops there's first three games maybe a little bit small sample size 
guys, possibly. But still, a very good debut so far for Michael Conforto. But Brandon Nemo has now made the jump to AAA. We just heard that news today. So far this season, the former first-round pick, the 13th overall pick in the 2011 draft out of Wyoming, East High School in Cheyenne, Wyoming. This year in 64, 68 games for AA Binghamton, a 279 average, a 722 OPS. Uh, he has been a, a pretty effective guy at the AA level in a, a ballpark that's not conducive to offense, a league that isn't very offensively conducive, but Brandon Nemo's had a very good season, and now he gets that test at AAA. Yeah, um, you know, the one thing, as you were saying there, going from Binghamton to Las Vegas, I mean, those are two different parks. We'll get yeah, to- it is a pretty big, that is a pretty yeah, big differential. Right. Uh, you know, Nimmo only had two homers this year in the Eastern League. Wouldn't be surprised if he at least hit two more in the PCL at some point. He's not a big power guy. He's one of those guys who's he's got tools. You know, he's got he's going to be at least major league average in all five tools, but um, it's not like any one of them explicitly pops out at you. I mean, he's not going to – he may have double-digit power by the time he gets a little older. I, I don't know if that's going to happen necessarily. He's not going to steal a bunch of bases, but it, his feet are good enough to move around the base paths and, and play in center. He's got a pretty good arm out there. Um, so, yeah, this will be a good test to see, A, if he can handle AAA pitching, and, B, what happens when he does get to play in a little bit of a hitter's park. Yeah, and I think I think I might be a little more bearish on Nima than most at this point just because I, I think the big question the people who – who have questions about him really is um, is the pull power in there? Is the ability to to drive the ball out of the park really there? He is one of the best hitters in the minor leagues, I think, at tracking the ball deep into the hitting zone and hitting it the other way. He can it's a left-handed hitter and he can use left center gap about as well as any left-handed hitter in the minors. But it kind of seems like he's a one-trick pony in that regard. He's a really good two-strike hitter because of that. But if he gets ahead, 1-0-2-0 in his numbers, certainly last year, I know, bear this out, and I haven't checked this year. I should, probably should have checked that before I dove into this. But um, I think, you know, based on the low home run numbers, I would expect it's still the case that when he's ahead in the count, he either doesn't have that swing or doesn't have the approach to where he's going to say, okay, I'm going to look for this fastball, middle up, you know, something that I can drive, and then, you know, go and drive that pitch. That's something he hasn't quite shown an ability to do and has had a lot of time sort of to show that. And this is something I think it's been – talked about with a lot of Mets prospects I think we kind of have the same conversation about Dom Smith and, and whether the pull power is really there for him it's something that Smith shows in batting practice so you know what's in there but I think he's only pulled one home run in his minor league career he has four or five of them or something I think only one of them been to the pool side Nemo has a very similar approach all these guys are, are Mets first round picks so that's maybe not surprising it seems like a profile that they're getting after um, but definitely something that stands out about Nemo where, where I wonder um, if that pull power is in there and if he can really succeed against upper-level pitching, um, you know, once they figure out that, that, hey, maybe if we just stick inside on this guy, he's, he's not necessarily going to beat us. This is going to be one of those frenetic weeks for people who like prospects or people who like baseball because it's Tuesday as we're recording this, and I already feel like I need a nap. Uh, but there's going to be a lot of moving and shaking this week. And uh, even if it's just like stuff like that, like guys making the climb up the organizational ladder because of maybe some paths that have been cleared in front of them, going to be a fun rest of the week. And uh, from some of the more advanced guys in the minors who we were talking about just then, I'm going to talk about some of the younger guys in the minors who are really making some big impacts on a team that is loaded with very young talent names like Michael Chavis and Rafael Devers and Javier Guerra and Yoan Moncada. We are going to head to Greenville, South Carolina and catch up with Greenville Drive Manager Darren Fencer to talk some of the hottest young talent in the Boston Red Sox system next. Our 
guest this week getting a rare uh, off day here in the middle of the summer. The manager of the Class A Greenville Drive, kind of kind enough to join us, is Darren Fenster on the phone. Darren, thanks for joining us. How's everything going? It's going well. Enjoying, like you said, a, one of our rare off days here in a 140-game season. Uh, you know, happy to happy to have you guys. Um, so I have we obviously want to talk about you have a a very talented roster you're working with there in Greenville but I actually just wanted to start with you personally because I'm always interested especially in guys who are younger managers in the minor leagues and and, you know we always talk about uh, player development and the focus on improving players but this is a chance too for for young managers obviously to to prove their chops and to kind of grow through this is your second season now with the Greenville Drive your second season managing a full season affiliate. I kind of wanted to ask first, just how the the experience has been different for you the second time around doing this now with a full season team you'd managed in the the Gulf Coast League and the the complex before, but the second time kind of uh, going through a, a league and, and traveling and handling players in that environment. Kind of how the experience has been different from you. Kind of what the learning curve has been like, and and um, you know just generally what you think you've picked up in your you know year and a half plus now of, of managing at that level. Right. Um, I think uh, um way more prepared this year just in dealing with a full season and understanding the true grind that uh, not only the players but also our staff goes through over the course of the year and um, you know for the majority of guys at this level it's their first full season and they're going to go through the ups and downs that you know all guys go through uh, over the course of their careers Um, but at this level because it is their first full season it's probably a bigger adjustment because they've never experienced it before so having dealt with it last year with um the group that i had then i think you know uh, both myself and and uh, the staff that we have here we were uh, more more prepared to kind of handle these things and you know you almost get ahead of the curve and uh, put these guys in an even better position knowing what they had Darren, when you join a, a full season league after being in the GCO, what's the biggest adjustment there? Because I mean, obviously, Gulf Coast League, you're kind of in the team facility. You've got a little bit maybe more familiarity around you. There's a lot of commuter trips, all that kind of stuff. But you know, then you jump up to Greenville and you're on bus rides overnight. I mean, the way you did it when you were a player in the minors, and the guys are staying in hotels and they're not at the facility and all that. What's the biggest difference for a coaching staff going from a, a short season league like the GCL and jumping up to the Sally League? Well, GCL is an entry level league, so I would probably say that the majority of the work at that level is you're doing as much professionalizing guys and in some cases babysitting guys as you are even working with them on the field. Um, Once you get to this level, um, the guys who break with this team, uh, they're either high school kids who have a couple of years under their belt, the Latin players who have been through the academy and through GCL and probably short season, so they have a few years in the organization and college kids who, you know, you would like to hope that are a little bit more mature. So what that allows us to do at this level is really um, take a, take a significant step forward just from a baseball perspective, knowing that um, a lot of the professionalism has already been taken care of uh, to this point. That doesn't mean we have, we don't have issues that we have to deal with throughout the course of the year, but they are far fewer. And that allows us to do the job that we want to do, which is be on the field to help our guys, you know, as players. Yeah, I think that transitions well into the first player I want to ask you about is a guy who is making that transition, but I think he has even more to it just because of other factors, that being Yohan Mankata, obviously signed out of Cuba uh, early in the spring, spent some time in extended spring training, got to you guys in, in May, and, and after maybe a little bit of a slow start, been hitting really well of late. I wanted to ask specifically with the off-field stuff with him, because he is uh, coming from a, a country where he obviously probably didn't know anybody there and, and he obviously shares a language with some of the people there, but um, you know, new country, new playing style, doing it very rapidly compared to a lot of these other guys who maybe sign at 16 and get a few years to at least get acclimated to 
the professional process and, and coming with all that money and everything too. I just want to ask, you know, have there been any, any bumps on the road with, with Yon getting sort of acclimated and what's that process been like and how's he done adjusting to, um, you know, all of that uh, on top of just the regular, you know, dealing with the day-to-day -day grind, the learning, the professional, uh, you know, the day-to-day. The -day. How's he handled all that? He's been great, um, and I wouldn't necessarily call them bumps in the road, um, but rather just his learning curve, where, uh, without a doubt, my experience managing in the GCL at that entry level has helped me um, just in dealing with him, understanding that, hey, from the day that this kid signed in March or whatever it was, every single thing that we're introducing to this kid was brand new, and for us to expect this kid to... Um, have everything down from day one, you know, it's, it's not realistic. Obviously the kid's going to have some significant expectations that come with, you know, his signing bonus for his entire career. And, you know, I think one of the things that I've told a lot of people is that, Hey, this is a 19 year old kid. He's actually just turned 20, but you know, this is a kid who is in low a for the same reason that everybody else is because, you know, he's got stuff to work on. And um, I think the experience he had in spring training, um, the experience he had in ex extended spring training, just to kind of get him comfortable with the daily routine um, before getting him up here in the beginning of May, put him in a very, very good place rather than sending him here right out of the gate only with a couple weeks under his belt. Um, the staff down there did a really good job of kind of getting him acclimated, you know, and not having the spotlight on him entirely. Uh, and then he got here and fell in line very, very well with the other 24 guys in, in the clubhouse who he built relationships with in spring training. I mean, that's one of the great things with how we have things set up down in Fort Myers is that, you know, guys are all together. We have a minor league clubhouse and a major league clubhouse. So you know, there's really no separation. And uh, so when he came in here, he had guys he could, uh, you know, continue to have a friendship with and a relationship with. And those guys who were already here for about a month understood the standard that uh, we hold our guys to every day, understand the routine. And, uh, you know, he fell in line really, really well with them. Uh, getting his feet wet here for a month and a half, uh, getting comfortable in just the environment here. Um, I think finally enabled him to just go out and play and, you know, forget about all the, uh, the outside factors that, you know, might've been holding him back, might've been on his mind. And, you know, I think we're finally starting to see the player that, you know, everybody uh, expected when we signed him. Darren, with a guy like that, is it ever difficult for you guys as a staff to communicate to him, it's okay, we understand that it's going to take a little while for to, de to develop and, and to get adjusted to pro ball? I know, you know, so many of the things you read, especially about the Cuban defectors, uh, I know Jorge Soler, for example, when he was signed, kind of didn't really know why he was in the minor leagues for a while I think in his first couple of seasons he was kind of like you know I got all this money I'm very talented why am I not in Chicago and Yasiel Puig there were always the stories about how you know when you you give a guy who hasn't had a lot in his life when you give him a lot of money it contributes a lot of stress mentally to all of a sudden man I got to go out and perform I have to be the the best guy that I can be is it difficult at all as a coaching staff to make sure that you're able to communicate to a guy we know this could take a little while. Just relax, play your game, be the guy who you are, and everything will take care of itself. I don't think there's any question about it. And, you know, I think whether Yohan got $31 million or, you know, $5,000, I think just his makeup is of someone who really expects a lot out of himself and holds himself to a high standard, which is a really good thing. Uh, and when he doesn't perform to that level, um, you know, I think you know, he's disappointed in himself. But our focus here as a staff, and this isn't just with him, it's with every single player that we have, 
is not necessarily what goes on during the game, but everything that happens uh, before the game, you know, starting at 2 o'clock when our work days really begin, where, you know, we, we do so much drill work uh, on an individual standpoint between the defensive side of things, team fundamentals, obviously he's spending a lot of time, uh, you know, perfecting his swing with Nelson Paulino in the, in the cage. Um, and, you know, we, we preach to him and to everybody else, hey, we really just want you to lock in with your best effort and your best focus on all this stuff that we're doing before the gates open. And we promise us if, uh, you know, if you give us that, that kind of an effort and focus every day, the results that you want and that we want for you are going to take care of themselves, um, you know, in the game. And to, to Yohan's credit and to, you know, a lot of other guys say here, you know, they, they fully embrace that. And I think because of the fact that these guys, uh, uh, both of them have, have had some very good develop, developmental years and they've seen firsthand for themselves their own development. It helps to buy in on all that work uh, starting at 2 o'clock that much easier. And, uh, you know, we got 30-some games left here to go. And, you know, we're going to continue to push these guys all the way through the end of the year so that they finish on a strong note. And, uh, you know, we're excited to um, continue to work these guys and, and, and get them better every day. Yeah, we'll slide uh, across the infield. I want to ask about a, a guy who's played a lot of third base for you this year in Raphael Devers. Um, just 18 years old, obviously very young for that league. I think he might be the, the youngest guy in the South Atlantic League this year um, and putting up really good numbers throughout the year. But it seems like recently the, the home runs are starting to come a little more. I, I know just from having seen him take batting practice and things that um, there's there's plenty of power in there. It's not something he lacks, but was um, something that was kind of just coming in, in, in small doses early in the season. I think he's got three in the last week. I just want to ask... Um, you know, if there's anything in particular you've seen from him that's letting that power sort of start to translate into games a little bit now, if there's anything you guys are working on to, to bring that out for him a little bit and kind of how you toe the balance with a young kid like that who, you know, if he's ever tempted to sell out for power or something, it seems like he's done a really good job of staying in his approach, at least based on, on the numbers and just watching a little bit of video and things. Right. I mean, you said it's staying within his approach. I think, um, you know, this is a, an extraordinarily talented hitter uh, for, for his age to be doing the things that he's doing at this level against players, I think on average three to four years older than him is, uh, is it's just really, really impressive. And, you know, his biggest thing, he's a middle of the field hitter um, who, because he's constantly thinking of just going, going right back at the pitcher, he puts himself in a position to handle the inside pitch and, and pull the ball that way or go the other way on, on balls out of the half plate. And with regard to the power, uh, with him or anybody else, power is really never anything that we even touch on at, at this level unless we see a guy who's trying to force some power. And we're trying to get him away from that because, you know, we want guys to become good hitters first with the understanding that once you become a good hitter, you have a chance to add the power later. And uh, for as talented as, as Raphael is, as, as fundamentally sound as, as his swing is, I think he's starting to grasp that on his own where – um, understanding some pitches that he's able to drive out of the ballpark. Um, and, you know, whether he's consciously working on that or not, I think this is more of a case of someone who's just kind of figuring himself out relatively quickly. And I think if you look at his progression since we've signed him, uh, you know, he's had a lot of success of uh, kind of figuring things out on his own and, uh, you know, being able to take the things that we talked about early, early on in the day and, and take them into the game. And obviously his his results speak for themselves. Yeah, and that's, that's interestingly kind of transitions to another guy I wanted to ask about, and that's about the the power, I guess, in particular with uh, Nick Longy, uh, outfielder and, and first baseman. 
Um, just as a guy with a, a corner profile, I think fans expect that a lot of power is going to come with that. And I think uh, Nick has shined in, in a lot of areas this year. He looks like he has a, a really good approach, and the power hasn't been there. And it sounds like that's something that may be uh, sort of preached to him is to not focus on that. I'm just curious where you think he falls on that scale, and if that's something you think he might grow into more as that power, and kind of how, you know, once he maybe gets beyond you guys at Greenville, kind of where and when that starts to come into the developmental process, you think? Yeah, Nick is actually kind of kind of the opposite of of, a, of most hitters uh, at this level in his age, where he's he's a far better hitter when he's deeper into the count and, and even with two strikes. Um, where I think his one of his best strengths is is hitting the ball back up the middle and the other way um, early in the count. You know, sometimes he gets a little bit over aggressive and uh, to the borderline of undisciplined and puts himself in the holes when he kind of uh, makes a transition to just more of a sea ball hit ball and you know he's he's peppered the right side of the field with with line drives extra base hits um you know i don't know what his numbers are but i i think he has you know a handful of doubles you know maybe four or five home runs but this guy does have some juice in his bat um completely untapped at this point um but one of his biggest focuses that that we've discussed with him is just you know understanding the importance of timing understanding the importance of pitch selection which he shows far better later in the count than he does early in the count. And I think um, because he's kind of got the hard part down, I think you're going to see a guy who's going to develop significantly over the next couple of years once he kind of truly understands, you know, how to lock in on a series on, on a specific zone and a specific pitch early in the count where he can get a little bit more aggressive in the swing. Um, and then, you know, uh, as this kid grows, I mean, another young kid, 18, 19 years old, um, who is only going to get stronger over the next few years. And, uh, Naturally, uh, when that happens, hopefully that translates into a little bit more um, extra base power. Darren, another guy, another teenager, which it seems like are the only guys that we talk about on this team because there's so much talent and it's so young. But uh, Javier Guerra is a, a Sally League all-star, um, a guy who has really improved a lot of things, it seems like, this year. But I want to ask you about a couple of things you've seen from him. One, I mean, he's leading this team uh, in home runs. And a guy who's not a, a huge guy uh, in terms of his size and doesn't play necessarily at a power position as your everyday shortstop. But between that, I mean, being able to hit with some pop this year, 13 homers in 82 games, and also the fact that he seems like he has improved his plate discipline a lot. I mean, I know last year he only walked, I think, five times in, in 51 games or so in the GCL. This year he's got 22 walks. What have you seen from him as far as his the the development of his approach at the plate from last season to this season or from even when he was debuting uh, as a young kid to, to what you see from him now? Right. Uh, well, this is my first exposure to him. I, I was with him in instructional league last year, and but wasn't really with him that much in, in spring training even this past year, to be honest with you with the way that we split up our staff and our players. But um, I can tell you this, over the course of the four-plus months of the season, um, no one has made more significant strides from an approach standpoint than, than Javier. You know, I, I don't know what his splits are month to month, but you know, I can tell you that his walks have steadily increased. Um, you know, like you said, if he only walked five times last year, that that is actually a surprise that he walked that much. Um, <laughs> because he... Uh, he got called up to a major league spring training game uh, this past year and actually walked in his first plate appearance. And, you know, we, we had the game on in the conference room and it was, you know, almost comical to the point that, you know, this is a guy that's been in the organization for a few years and, um, you know, hasn't drawn that many walks and he finally gets a chance to be with the major league team and he draws a walk in the first pass. So that's something that we've been focusing on, trying to get to be um, more selective, uh, but still not taking away the ability to, um, 
be ready to, to hit a first pitch or to hit early in the count. Uh, and he has done an outstanding job of uh, just zoning in on one pitch, being more uh, having better pitch recognition. And what that's done, it's put him into more favorable favorable hitting counts. So we've seen the results in average. We've seen the results in just his extra base hits. Uh, and and he's just continuing to get better each and every day. I mean, this is a kid with uh, as good aptitude to take something that we talk about at two o'clock and to take him into the game at seven o'clock. Kid who loves the game. He's, he's very very smart. Has a passion to play. And you know, like everybody else here, has a, has a high expectation of himself. And I think that's why they're such a good client for his part. And Darren, one uh, one last question from me, just about another player. We talk a lot about obviously teenagers um, really playing over their heads and punching above their weight there with Greenville. And one guy who is a teenager who uh, seems to be having maybe a little bit of a tougher time with that adjustment has been Michael Chavis, first-round pick for the Red Sox last year. I um, just want to ask kind of what you've seen from him, if there are areas where you think he's been improving. It seems like he's, he's been stringing together a few base hits of late and homered on, on Monday. Um, just kind of what you've seen from him, and do you think it's been challenging for him, especially just to be in an environment where there are so many teenagers who are playing well and getting some of the attention that comes along with that, kind of what the season has been like for, for him and what you think the key is for him and uh, turning things around a little bit in the second half and, and getting a, a strong start or a strong finish to the year. Yeah, you know, it's definitely been an up-and-down year for Mike. Um, offensively, you know, he's not where he or, or us, you know, obviously would, would like him to be at this point. Um, but uh, it's often something that gets lost in the shovel is what guys do on the defensive side of the ball. And, uh, for a, similar to the, the development that Javier Guerra has made offensively, uh, this is a completely different player uh, defensively at third base where, you know, I take almost three different snapshots of when I first saw him in instructional league last year to spring training this year to where he is right now. Uh, I mean, his development is just absolutely incredible to the point where this guy is really coming along as a third baseman. Um, playing under control, keeping his feet consistent, throwing the ball across the diamond, you know, without much effort, but still having a lot of throw, uh, a lot of uh, carry on. Um, and the point that we've kind of stressed to him is for him to understand the things he's done defensively, the focus that he's put into that work and the, the attention to the details there and to see how far he's come along and just trying to get him to be of the same mindset offensively because um, he does put a lot of pressure on himself. And whether that has to do with the guys who – surround him every day or whether that has to do with him being a first-round draft pick or just a kid who's not used to failure because you know we sometimes forget a year ago this kid was in high school and um you know we're taking baby steps with him and approach is a big deal for him and um he, he's he's one of those guys who wants to have the power and and we really got to get him more focused on just staying in the middle of the field um and understanding that the power is going to come naturally and he's He's shown us some glimpses of that, and uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we um, we had a series in Asheville, whose stadium is actually pretty conducive to exactly what we want him to do, where it's a short center field and a very short right field. Um, and whether that played into his approach to that series, I mean, he was back up the middle and the other way with some juice behind it, in as consistent a four or five game set as we've seen out of him. So uh, he has the ability to do it, and it's just a matter of him kind of taking that approach each and every day and then trusting all the work that we're doing uh, previous 7 o'clock, like, like all these other guys. So um, it's been a little bit of a slower process with him, but um, he has shown us that it's, it's in there and we, we're just trying to get it out a little bit more every night. Darren Fencer is the manager at Class A Greenville and the Boston Red Sox organization. Darren, we really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to join us. Hope you enjoy the rest of the off day. Thanks, Darren. Appreciate it, guys. Yep, thanks. Take care. Uh,
Our biggest thanks to Darren Fenster of the Boston Red Sox organization joining us from Class A Greenville in the South Atlantic League. And uh, we're going to stay in the South and continue chatting with somebody who is very familiar with oppressive heat, as I'm sure Darren Fenster is as well. Uh, but our good pal Benjamin Hill joins us. Uh, welcome back to the show, Ben. Earlier on in the year, uh, the Midwest League, very hot and humid. And you're in another place that could also make you melt this season. Yeah, I'm in New Orleans. I'm trying to learn how to say it right because I still try to say New Orleans. So I guess it's more of a New Orleans, New Orleans, New Orleans. I don't know. But that's where I am, and uh, it is very hot, but I feel like complaining about being in Louisiana in the summertime <laughs> is just, well, of course it's hot. Like, why'd you go there then? So I feel like I don't really have much room to complain. I booked a trip, and here I am. And Yeah, it's hot. Even putting on my, like, Ben's Biz uniform, you know, just a pair of jeans and a collared shirt trying to look somewhat professional. It's rough. Do you have a collared shirt, at least with your own logo yet? No, there's no Ben's Biz merch at the moment. Dang but uh, I really do need a collared shirt logo. Or actually a little polo shirt with you know, the insignia. Yeah. I wear myself on my left breast. I would, bear, I would, I would totally rock a t-shirt with the Ben's Biz logo on it. Can we do that? Let's talk yeah. to somebody. Somebody take a letter. <laughs> or right to a merchandising company. Uh, ben, obviously kicking off uh, a south slash south, southeastern uh, southern road trip this week, as we discussed last week. But I want to dovetail off of a topic that we covered last week, which is the Fresno Tacos. Uh, the the rebrand for one night, Taco Truck Throwdown, the fifth edition of that in Fresno. Fresno Grizzlies are going to be the Fresno Tacos for one night. But there was a story that came out this week that there is apparently discussion going on. I don't know how serious it is. The author of the story did not know how serious it is that there is at least some level of discussion going on in the Grizzlies front offices as to maybe we should just be the tacos permanently. And I emailed you that link. Is there any, do you think there's any chance that that actually happens? I mean, obviously you would think, Oh, tacos, what a ridiculous name, but you know, we have a team named the Flying Squirrels in MILB. Like, it's not that outlandish. Do you think there's a possibility this happens? Fresno goes to be the Tacos full-time? A possibility, yes. I mean, would I bet on it? No. But one thing, you know, I've learned through covering this uh, this world over the last decade, and especially in recent years, is uh, there's been a lot of times I've thought to myself, no, nah, they're not actually going to do that. Like, El Paso's not going to be the Chihuahuas. <laughs> and thinking I have a, you know, I'm, I have a good good read on what's going to happen and what's not. I've been consistently surprised in recent years just how far teams are willing to go. Uh, that said, the reason this got so much attention, uh, Fresno Tacos, is because it is a one-time thing. It's a way to have fun for one night tied into a specific promotion. Um, you know, the novelty would wear off. You know, it would be a huge amount of publicity if they changed their name full-time. But then once that wore out, you still have to be the tacos every day. And I'm not sure if that's something the community could embrace long-term as much as they do embrace tacos. Um, never say never, but if I'm a betting man, I'll put the odds at, a, I don't know, four to one. See, I, I, I don't know. I, I wonder about this because I feel like I still, in my interactions with people who are outside of the minor league baseball world, which somehow they, they still talk to me, all those other people, every time somebody finds out that there's a team in Montgomery called the Biscuits, they lose their minds. I feel like That is true. Is true. This that might be an opportunity for Fresno to, to build something with some real staying power. If you ask people right now, who's the minor league team in, in Fresno, unless you're from the area or a fan of the Giants or the Astros or something, you might not know it's the Grizzlies. I don't even know. Are Grizzlies, are they, are they native to Fresno? I don't know what's behind that name. But if they're the Tacos, people are going to know that team and that, that brand. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. And I think the Biscuits is a good point. 
that has worked for them. So, um, you know, that's why I said never say never. And I think you make a good point that, um, you know, Grizzlies isn't all that specific to Fresno. You know, there's the state bear or that it's the, the bear on the state flag. And, you know, it has some California connections to them. But um, tacos are much more specific to Fresno and the Central Valley than are grizzly bears. So I think you've got a good point there. And it would be um, just the more people realize it through the years. Wait, their names are tacos? Just like we see now at the Biscuits. The Biscuits has been around for more than a decade. And there's still people like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe this. You know, so I could see going that route. You could amaze someone every single day. Ben is continuing to crank out some really good stuff from his trip through the Carolinas, the Virginias um, so far this season. But the the trip through the South starts in New Orleans, and I have never been to New Orleans. I haven't been to uh, to the Zephyrs facility, but there are. I mean, I've heard a lot of interesting things about it. That it's kind of the Zephyrs seem like they were caught in one of those strange eras of minor league baseball. It was at the kind of the start of the MILB Renaissance, really, when they moved to New Orleans. But it wasn't the full blown late '90s, early 2000s explosion of minor league baseball that we saw. What are you anticipating seeing uh, from New Orleans? Because, I mean, it's a city with an NFL team and an NBA team, and they're kind of one of those sort of quadruple-A markets. But this experience in New Orleans, what are you anticipating seeing uh, tonight at at checking out the Zephyrs? Yeah, I'm I'm curious about it because it's not a uh, team I've gotten much of a sense of just through the years covering them to the extent I have covered them from afar. Um, The team's not even located in New Orleans proper. It's a town a little further out, and I'm forgetting the name, and I'm about to drive there. Like Metairie, Metairie, something like yeah, that. Yeah, M-E-T-A-R-I-E, I think it is, Metairie, which yeah. probably has some weird French pronunciation that I don't know in Louisiana, but yeah. Right, and I'll nail that down today. But So it's not – if you live in the city proper, you really – you know, you've got to get out there and commute to the game. It's not near anything else specifically. And really, the few people I've talked to, I'm actually uh, – I saw a friend of mine who lives in the city today. You know, I feel like the general sense is like, oh, yeah, we maybe go on July 4th, maybe once or twice. Um, I don't think it's – even as a major market, I don't think the average person living here has really tapped into the team much. They're out of sight. They're out of mind. And it's a city with so much culture and so much else going on that minor league baseball is kind of hard to enter into the equation. Um, so I think they do okay, but you know, being a little isolated, playing in a very hot market, like just literally very hot, playing in a market with a lot of other things to do, I think they've um, had a hard time really establishing themselves um, just in the city at large. And I'm curious to kind of see, you know, what kind of fans show up tonight and uh, who they are, and, and you know how the team really does on a Tuesday night in late July. Well, when you mention the culture, I mean, that's the first thing I think of New Orleans. I haven't been there either, but every time I hear something, it's it's almost like another world, especially for us, those of us up in the Northeast. Um, just kind of in the way you planned it or researched them or in your work with them, do they try to tap into that different, you know, Bayou culture, New Orleans culture at all, or is it just because it's a little outside the city, it's its own kind of thing? Um, I'm sure they tap into it you know, to at least some extent, you, you can't not and be located where they are. Uh, one thing I, I'm looking forward to seeing is, you know, their mascot is a Nutria. And I, I've never seen a Nutria before. A lot I don't of even know what that mascot is. Term. N-U-T-R-I-A. They're kind of like large rats. And apparently um, they're delicious. And there was apparently what? a really? to to get people to eat them because they were overrunning a lot of these kind of out, outland swamp areas. And people were saying like, Hey, kill these things, eat them, have a good time. 
uh, but that's the mascot, a nutria. You might look at it and think that's a cat or maybe an otter, but, you know, it's a specific uh, Louisiana kind of feline rat-looking thing. And uh, and who knows, maybe maybe they got some nutria at the concession stand, though I'm not, not holding my breath. I had no idea that that was uh, a thing. I would I think I would have just figured it was a rat and, you know. Again, like in the world of minor league baseball, it's not like that would have been outlandish. There's a team named after squirrels. You know what? A nutria sounds more like a thing that Brett Phillips would swing a baseball bat at. (laughs) (laughs) Just a standard rat. And then this nutria came on the field. Uh, Benjamin Hill, our good pal, joining us from New Orleans. Ben is also headed uh, to Biloxi on this trip, which I think will be really cool, too. That whole situation, the ballpark opening midseason this year, but the fans have really gone crazy uh, embracing Biloxi so far this year. Go give Ben a follow on Twitter. He is at Ben's Biz. Check out the blog, bensbiz.mlblogs.com. And as long as you do not melt, Ben, we will talk to you next week. All right. Sounds like a plan. I'll, I'll do my best to stay solid. Benjamin Hill on the road again. You can give Ben a follow on Twitter at Ben's Biz and follow his road trip all season long. The majority, the multiplicity of road trips that he has taken all year have been through such a wide range and diverse, like from the new ballparks and crazy food to like when he was in Lynchburg and they had weird food, but it's an old ballpark and it's being rained out. Nobody covers it all better than Ben. So give Ben a follow on Twitter. He is at Ben's biz. Uh, Gents last night, Monday night, very long evening for a whole lot of people who are waiting around to figure out which Toronto Blue Jays were going to be shipped out in the deal for Troy Tulowitzki. Uh, the final name of that group uh, did not even come out until this morning, but this has been a very big, and I think kind of a big head-scratcher for a lot of people, but a very big domino to fall early on in the trade deadline as the Blue Jays have shipped three top-pitching prospects to the Colorado Rockies in exchange for Troy Tulowitzki. Uh, there were some other names involved in that deal, obviously, like LaTroy Hawkins and Jose Reyes, but hey, we're here to talk about prospects on this podcast uh jeff hoffman who jake and i interviewed back on episode number 10 of this show which you can go find now on milb.com and on itunes as well jeff hoffman slots in into mlb pipelines rankings of rockies prospects as the number four prospect in the organization uh the rockies have also acquired right-hander miguel castro and the final piece to fall in that deal uh is yet another right-hander that's jesus tinoco he'll slot in at number 18 uh but this is something that the rockies have not done and something a lot of people have said that they need to do for a long time. They're never going to be able to sign free agent pitching. they got to go get it in trades. Uh, and Jeff Hoffman and Castro especially seem like two very high-ceiling guys. Your initial reactions to this deal, you guys? Yeah, I thought it made sense for them to uh, trade. And I, th- I think it made sense maybe less for the Rockies, but more to get a deal done for them to, to bring back a guy like Jose Reyes and, and his contract, um, just because it's hard to make deals for, for big salaries like that and commitments when – GMs are already working within a budget in the middle of the season, so I'm not surprised that if a deal went down in the middle of the season, that's the kind of deal that went down. As far as the return, I, I definitely think the Rockies are, are swinging for the fences here, and they're doing it in a way that's um, pretty predictable just based on their nature. They have a really hard time, obviously, bringing free agent pitchers to come into Coors Field, so they've tried really hard both through the draft and, and through trades and things to get arms that can be impactful arms that are capable of, of working at Coors Field. Now, that said... I think Hoffman is, uh, we've talked about Hoffman and to Hoffman this year, friend of the podcast. I think he's an, an excellent pitching prospect. I think he is an interesting fit for the Rockies because they have really gone after a lot of guys whose strengths are working down in the strike zone, working down with movement. I think Eddie Butler is a really good example of that. I think John Gray has some of that, has an arsenal that can be geared towards ground ball pitching. 
Hoffman is not necessarily that guy. Hoffman's uh, he has big velocity and his fastball can can take up into to triple digits. He's at 99 this year and he's just coming back from Tommy John surgery now, so you figure there might be another tick or two in that tank. And his best off-speed pitch though is, is a hard 12-6 curveball, something with a lot of break, um, a lot of movement, the kind of thing that's going to be set up better by fastballs up in the zone more so than stuff down in the zone. Um, and he has a changeup that's been a little firm this year as he's coming back from the surgery, but has shown some promise in the past and, and certainly projected to be a, a, a pretty good third pitch. But the fastball and the curveball are his big one, too. And that's those kind of guys are usually the kind of guys who have to rely a little bit more on pop-ups and fly balls and certainly on strikeouts. Um, the strikeouts haven't really been there for Hoffman so far this year. I don't think that's really a point of panic just because, again, he is coming back from the surgery. Um, for various reports, I think uh, the guy who's really been on top of Hoffman's uh, recovery has been Kyla McDaniel with Fangraphs. He's talked a lot about how uh, the Blue Jays kind of have adjusted Hoffman's delivery a little bit this year. He's been a little bit more upright, um, looks a little bit like Aaron Sanchez, who's pitched out of the bullpen with the, the Blue Jays and uh, obviously been one of their top prospects for a while. Um, and the curveball hasn't been quite as sharp. Hoffman seems to still have. Um, you know, he had a, a curveball that was getting plus to plus plus grades when he was in college. And he's shown a few of those, so it's still in there. But it seems like he is intentionally toning that down and holding back a little bit on the fastball velocity, which might just be a thing where he's coming back and being careful with the elbow because he is you know, just 14 or 15 months removed from Tommy John's surgery. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see what kind of pitcher he turns into. And the Rockies especially, they're really big in the development process on getting guys to keep the ball down on, in the zone, uh, try to generate some movement on fastballs. And these are things that are... Um, not necessarily M.O.s for Hoffman. I think every pitcher tries to pitch down and locate within the strike zone and those kind of things, but are maybe less important for him and his repertoire than they might be for other pitchers. I think he's an interesting fit for that. Uh, Tonoko is more of a, a guy that really fits, I think, with what Colorado tries to do with the ground ball pitchers and the Castro, some of that in him too. Um, but definitely three upside arms and, and guys that uh, make sense in a lot of ways for the Rockies if they're going to move a guy like Tulowitzki to try to get some, some impactful pieces for the rotation. What I find interesting about this move is that the Rockies seem like they are taking a new tact in what they think can work to win at Coors Field. For so long, there are all these like very bizarre attempts to figure out what could tame Coors Field. Oh, maybe we'll go four pitchers, and they'll only throw 75 pitchers apiece, no matter how well they're throwing, and then we'll take them out, and we'll put in a piggyback guy behind them. This is very odd. When It never came down to, like, I don't know, why don't you just try getting better players? That was like never in the equation. They always had these very weird approaches. Now, I think the big thing is, the Rockies now have a player development guy running the show in Jeff Breidich, and that's what seems to be the biggest difference between this and seasons past is Jeff Breidich, I think, and as it seemed this morning at the press conference at Coors Field, has been told by Rockies owner Dick Montford, this is your thing now. You go do it. You need to do to build a winner here. And for so long, he was way too meddlesome in affairs. That was always the, the impression that people got out of the Rockies' uh, front office situation was that Dick Montford had too much weight in calling shots. Having a player development guy in that position now seems like it will benefit the Rockies as being a draft and develop kind of organization. I'll be interested, though, Sam, in the way that these guys transition, especially for somebody like Hoffman, who a Tommy John guy a year ago, very, very good in his debut so far. I mean, as we know, he touched 99 in his professional debut, his first start back from Tommy John surgery. But, you know, it's you kind of get it's like you were adopted by you're a puppy, you're adopted by somebody. And then all of a sudden you're you're gone and you're off somewhere else. It's barely over one year in an organization that's probably not an easy transition to just be all of a sudden flipped and go somewhere else no i'm sure it's not but you know uh, it's one way to just kind of learn how quickly this business works 
Um, I think Jeff did that. It sounded like he was very thankful when you guys talked to him reading some other stuff, just thankful for the opportunities the Blue Jays gave him to begin with. Um, you know, now it's a new organization. Like you said, if they are really evaluating hard throwers like him, he might even have a little more value for the Rockies. You know, they, they're going to prize him. He's for the rest of his time there. He's going to be known as maybe the prize of the, uh, trade that sent away Troy Tula. That's a great point. That's that's a little bit of pressure, obviously. I mean, to be known as that guy for the rest of your career, but at the same time, they're going to treat him like that type of prize, and I think that's going to kind of help him um, at least ease that transition. Um, I'm, I'm more interested to see how he's going to do next year, you know, when he's fully back from the surgery. Obviously, he's fully back this year, but just the first full season, um, see if the, the strikeout numbers do come or if he is relying a little bit more on contact. Um but yeah, I, I, I think you know that he's a guy that the Rockies fans can be excited for going into next year when he is fully healthy, when he is fully using all of his arsenal and has it all behind him. Rockies general manager Jeff Breidich did say that the assignments today have pretty well been determined for all three of these guys. Uh, the Rockies will send Jeff Hoffman. He'll actually not really make that far of a journey. He gets to stay in the Eastern League. He'll go from New Hampshire to New Britain. Uh, as it looks right now, Miguel Castro, who has the potential to start, is probably going to stay in the bullpen for the time being. He'll go to AAA Albuquerque. And Jesus Tinoco, who spent the majority of this season, spent all of this season uh, with Class A Lansing, he will go to Class A Asheville in the South Atlantic League. So those three guys guys uh like i said kind of the first huge chip to fall in the major league baseball non-waiver trade deadline for 2015 and it's got the feeling to be a very big week i mean we're recording this on tuesday who knows what the world's going to look like on thursday at this rate yeah one thing kind of staying on the rockies um you know reading the story today about nolan arenado and how hard he took the tulo trade just how close they were he also said he expects carlos gonzalez to be traded so you know we get to see if that does go down um just what type of pieces the Rockies are looking to retool with and who they can get and from whom. Um, so, yeah, we'll have to check in on, again on that next week. It's going to be a fun week. Always a very, very fun week. Headed up to the non-waiver trade deadline and uh, keep an eye on our feeds at MILB. Uh, Sam Dykstra and Jake Siner. Obviously, you can find on Twitter as well. Jake is at Jake underscore Siner and Sam is at Sam Dykstra MILB. I am at Tyler Mon, and we'll, we'll be doing our best to break news this week as it happens as well. Um, last night was like so agonizing waiting around for hours upon hours for those names to come out, but it's a fun time of year and uh, it's going to get a little bit crazier before it calms down. So, We'll wrap up the 18th edition of MILB.com's The Show Before the Show podcast coming up next. Closing out the 18th edition of the show before the show, the minor league baseball podcast. You can give us a follow. Uh, you can subscribe to the podcast, rate and review on iTunes. You can also check out the podcast page at MILB.com. Got a lot of cool stuff coming up there. And uh, as we were just discussing between segments this week, we will be your destination spot for all of the players who you have not yet heard of who are coming to your team via trade. So be sure to check out MILB.com all week this week. And we got some good stuff coming up on, uh, on Milb TV this week as well northwest league and the pioneer league will play an inaugural all-star game against each other coming up on august 4th that's a tuesday so you can check that out in addition to other stuff gents yeah we got uh shamanaya we don't know when he's going to debut for midland but midland is on tv for uh for a while now in the texas league and pretty much everybody in texas league has a feed midland has a pretty good one so if you're an ace fan and looking to get your first look at at manaya you're definitely going to get that and aaron brooks maybe at triple a with uh uh, with uh, Nashville, might get to see that, and Jeff Hoffman probably will be on TV a good amount with New Britain. So, 
Uh, everybody going to be, uh, pretty much all the big names like we talked about today are going to be on TV at some point. Nemo and Conforto you can catch on MLB TV. He's no longer our problem. But, uh, but everybody else, I think, pretty much we talked about, you can, you can see uh, this weekend if you so choose. And not to mention postseason races are going to be heating up again. We had clinches, obviously, in the short season leagues this week. But uh, second half races get started really in earnest next month, headed toward the postseason in the first week of September. So uh, fun time of year, as it always is. And uh, that'll do it for episode number 18 of the show before the show. Rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. If you have questions, you can get in touch, podcast at MILB.com. Give us all a follow on Twitter as well as MILB. You can follow the site on Twitter as well. And until next week, when your team may look drastically different than they do right now enjoy the deadline we'll talk to you next week